been so much fun. We've gotten an incredible amount of positive response from people who are enjoying the process of seeing Jesus through the Old Testament. Each, each Sunday when I get here, uh, Richard Black, who's just one of the most gracious people in the world and, and serves us in so many ways, he sets up my computer, he does all of this, and while I'm visiting with people, he always grabs my glasses and he cleans them. And it's the only time each week that they get cleaned. And so it was really incredible when I put it on today. It turns out it was not cloudy in here at all. It was just my glasses. But I was thinking about how reflective that is of the way the Old Testament is a view of God's promised Messiah but the glasses haven't been cleaned enough yet to where you see it perfectly clear. And so what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament and, and those of us who've had the benefit of seeing Jesus, the Messiah, and understanding Him as who He is, when we look back at the Old Testament, to me it's just kind of like what, what we call a no-brainer. I mean, it's just like, whoa! And the, and the glasses are cleaned and you see things that, that are incredible. I don't know that there's any portion that is more so that way than the story of Moses and the Exodus. And so I'm excited to get to spend a few weeks teaching through that. And we'll start with part one this morning. Now, many of you have seen the movie. If you haven't, I commend it to you. But I will tell you this, in the Old Testament, there is no greater personage than Moses. I mean, Moses outweighs all of the... Uh, King David, pretty important. He may be close, but no. Abraham, certainly important, but no. In terms of the amount of time and the role that was played, there is no other Old Testament, no other person in the history of Judaism save Jesus himself. Maybe Paul, but no other person that has, has been so influential and changed so much. I mean, just look at Moses for a moment. The first five books of the Bible are called the five books of Moses. They're the law because it was Moses who gave, who God used to do, give us the law. But it's those five books that tell the story of his life. They explain him to be a leader, a liberator of the Jews, or no, not Jews, they're not Jews yet, they're Israelites, a liberator of the Israelites from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, the lawgiver who on Mount Sinai receives from God the law and gives it to the people. He was one who had encounters with God that are not found after him in the Old Testament pages. Not simply God speaking through him, but more than that, his encounters with God included God putting him in a cleft of the mountain so that he could, the presence of God could pass by without Moses being um, destroyed. 
Moses came down from the mountain after spending time with God. And Moses shone so brightly that the Israelites couldn't even look on him. They had to put a veil over him. Moses had these encounters. And so if you look at Moses as the center, those first five books are the five books that tell the story of Moses. Now certainly the first book is Genesis, but the Genesis book, Barashit in the Hebrew, what it does is it gives the foundations for the Moses story. It explains the human drama that's unfolding. It explains how Adam and Eve were made in this fellowship with God, but through sin, that fellowship was destroyed. Yet God redemptively said, I will come in and I will fix this problem through the offspring of woman. And then that prophetic promise of God just narrows in scope from just it will be someone from the offspring of woman. And actually, if you read the Hebrew, the gender is, it'll be a male singular offspring of woman who will crush the head of Satan. But then the field starts to narrow. Now it's going to be from Abraham. And the field from Abraham starts to narrow. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And then from Isaac, it narrows. It's not going to be Esau. It's going to be Jacob. And then from there, you've got the promises that it's going to bless all of the people of all of the nations. And so this is all set up in the Old Testament to tell us about Moses. I mean, in Genesis, to tell us about Moses. That Moses is one of the, the links in the chain, one of, one of the, the very important ways that God is delivering a message of deliverance. And that's what Moses is. He's a deliverer. And so when you get to the story of Moses in the book of Exodus, you've got the story of one who is going to help the people, Exodus. He's going to be delivering them from bondage. Now, Genesis is already set up that all of humanity is in the bo- under bondage with sin. So that's already been set up as a precursor to understanding the Exodus, which is a bondage, not as strong as the bondage of sin, but the strongest bondage anyone could know at the time. Egypt, at the time, the most powerful nation known. And so God is going to pull his people out of that bondage through Moses. Then you've got the third book of Moses called Leviticus. And it's a book that deals with rules for holiness, laws for living, and explains the rules for the Levites, the tribe of Levi, to instill and to teach and to oversee for Israel. And because these are the rules for the tribe of Levite to oversee and to institute and to to live by, the book is called in English, Levi to cuss, Leviticus. The third or the fourth book of Moses is the book of Numbers. And it starts out numbering the Israelites, but it's a book where the Israelite nation 
at Mount Sinai really comes together as a group. And instead of simply being a number of different tribes, it's truly becoming one nation. Now, it's a faithless nation in that first generation. They get to the promised land and they don't have enough confidence in the God who delivered them from Pharaoh, who opened the, the Red Sea and had them part, uh, parted for them to walk through. They did not have enough confidence in that God and enough faith in that God to go into the promised land and to, to, to take it by the power of God. So God says, time out. You won't be entering then. I need a faithful army to enter. So that army wanders in the wilderness throughout the book of Numbers while the generation of unbelief dies off, leaving the second generation, a believing generation, to go in and to take that land. The fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy, has final instructions from Moses and some of Moses' speeches for the people. And so that's, that's the last book. Now those are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. They were scrolls, but they were all grouped together as the law. And so if we were to take those and concentrate on the last of the five books of the law... We would find in Deuteronomy, in Moses' speeches and instructions, you'll find Moses saying this. Moses said, a prophet like me. Now, the like there doesn't mean same height, same hair color, anything. The, the, the like there is a reference to the fact that he's a prophet who, who fulfills roles the way Moses has fulfilled those roles. A prophet like me, from your midst, from your brothers, Yahweh your God will cause to arise before you. And to him, you must listen. If you're trying to chart along, you're saying, what version is that? Um, that's mine. <laughs> So it doesn't quite fit any of them, but I translated it, and that's what it says, and I'll fight for it with anybody. Um, a prophet like me, from your midst, he's saying, will arise out of Israel. And not on his own. Jehovah God, Yahweh God, will cause him to arise, will bring him forth. And you need to listen to him. Now that's a huge promise from the largest, most towering figure in all of the Old Testament. And that prophet, like Moses, never arose in the Old Testament. If we were to take the Old Testament the Hebrew Old Testament, and we come over to the Elmo for a moment. The Hebrew Old Testament, as, as we call it, the Old Testament, let's see, um, in Hebrew, it is the Tanakh. And that's because the T sound is the Torah. It is this first section. It is the five books of Moses, or the law. Got it? 
This becomes important in a minute. We're making a point, so hang on. Keep this. The second section, the end section, comes from the Nevaim, and my Hebrew spelling is horrible, but it's close to that. Um, Nevaim, um, which is the, uh, uh, the prophets. Now, their prophets start with our book of Joshua. It's a little different grouping than we're used to in the English Bible. And then the Ketuvim, that last section, are the other writings. And that's a group that starts with the Psalms. So this is Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is Joshua to Malachi. Malachi is the last one. And this is the Psalms through the Chronicles. First and Second Kings are part of the prophets, but First and Second Chronicles are part of the writings. So if we look at this right at the end of Deuteronomy, we have this statement that there, there will come another prophet like Moses. Okay? He's going to be like Moses. And then the next book, Joshua, starts out referencing the same idea. And it's like bookends. And so if we go back to the PowerPoint, a prophet like me will arise from your midst. That's the end of Deuteronomy. Or that's Deuteronomy. And then, and then, ah, I didn't put it in that order. I added this slide because I thought it was really a great representation. All of these ideas in the Old Testament, all of these prophecies, be looking forward because they're going to find fulfillment in the Messiah. And a good Israelite or a good Gentile who respects the God of Israel, who's the God of all, is going to read these prophecies knowing God does not lie and is going to be looking for their fulfillment. That's what we need to do. Moses himself said to do it. Now, at the end of Deuteronomy, the very, very end of the last book of Moses, Moses dies. But the prophets who put the books together say at the end, and no prophet like Moses has arisen in Israel since. Moses knew God face to face. Moses was sent by God to Egypt and Pharaoh doing signs and wonders to Pharaoh's servants and lands. Moses did awesome and great deeds before Israel in God's mighty power. There hasn't been anyone else in Israel at that time of that prophet's tag that had ever arisen like that. And I'd suggest if you want to understand Genesis as a book of beginnings, that's where you land. The Genesis itself set the whole stage for this. It was Genesis that said the purpose of humanity is to be in a relationship with God. But the problem with that is humanity's disobedience, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the rebellion, caused a separation caused humanity to live outside of a relationship with a holy God. What fellowship, to quote First John, what fellowship does light have with darkness? 
It doesn't. So there's got to be a solution. And God says the solution's going to come from me. We got ourselves into this mess. We're not going to work ourselves out of it. We're not the source of our life. We are nothing unless God breathes his life into us. And so within the framework of that, we understand that God's made this promise. And we watched last week as we walked through the offspring and the narrowing of that vision. We watched as God said, uh, not only is it going to come through the offspring of woman, but it's going to come through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. The promise for all of the people comes through Israel. The solution to sin comes through Israel. The offspring of woman who will crush the work of Satan comes through Israel. And with that, we enter into Moses. Now, to understand the Moses story, we've got to leave just a little bit of room to add a couple of things. What happened with Israel? What happened with Jacob? When last we left him in this series, Jacob was headed back and he'd had the, the confrontation with God at the Jabbok. And God said to him at the end, what is your name? And Jacob said, my name's Jacob. Now there was a do-over of the first degree. Because Jacob had been asked earlier in Genesis by his blind father, what's your name? And he lied and said, my name's Esau. God gives him a do-over. What's your name? And this time he's honest enough to give his real name. My name is Jacob, which means trickster, deceiver. And God says, no more. Now your name's Israel. And so Israel has bukus of kids. I mean, we got five. I can't imagine 12 or more. He's got bukus of kids, and you want sibling rivalry? They come from different mothers. See, Jacob thinks he's going to get the love... Thank you. Jacob thinks he's going to get the love of his life, Rachel. And he wants Rachel, but he gets tricked. The trickster got tricked. Karma in the Old Testament. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow, Paul said. So his father-in-law tricks him. Also moral to that story, don't drink so much at your wedding. He didn't realize it till the next morning. Seriously, a lot of students ask, why couldn't he tell who it was in the dark of the night? Look, he'd had too much to drink, most likely. So he gets Leah, wakes up the next morning and says, he gads, what is this? And his father-in-law says, hey, that's the way we roll here. The oldest gets married first. He says, but that wasn't the deal. Now, how do you think Leah felt? First of all, her dad can't marry her off on her own. 
she gets tricked into this, or he, her husband gets tricked into taking her as a wife. And then the second one comes in, Rachel, and, and Jacob gets her shortly thereafter. Some people think he worked another seven years and then got Rachel. No, 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 no. Read the story. He agreed to work another seven years and got Rachel almost immediately. And then stayed on seven more years to work to pay for her. Now, how do you think Leah feels? But this is the world in which we live. And guess which one's fertile? Leah. Rachel can't have kids. So Leah's pumping them out. And don't you know she's rubbing it in her sister's nose? Well, he may love you more, but <clears throat> who's the one who's able to give him the kids? And then Rachel says, well, you need to, here's one of my housemaids for, as a concubine. Use her. We'll put the kids in my name. And then Leah quits being fertile. So Leah's like, well, here's a concubine for me too. I mean, it's like, yeah, and I'll raise you one. <laughs> then finally, Rachel gets pregnant. And the long love of Jacob, of Israel, gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And Jacob plays daddy's favorites. And none of the other kids like it. And they hate, I mean, look, they already hate the kids of the others, but especially Rachel's kids. And dad starts giving Joseph these fancy gifts, coat of many colors. And Joseph now is rubbing, and then if it's not all bad enough, Joseph is a dreamer. And Joseph dreams that his brothers, older brothers and their families, and his mom and dad are all bowing down and worshiping and giving him homage. And if that's not bad enough, you know what he does? He tells the dream to his brothers <laughs> and his parents. And his dad's kind of like, Joe, 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 come on, man. <laughs> Keep it on the down low. Don't you know, this just this just throwing flame on the fire. Dad sends Joe out to go check on the brothers and take them something, and and because the brothers are having to work, Joe doesn't seem to do that much work, and so Joe goes out in his fancy coat. And what happens? The brothers see him coming. Oh, here comes the spoiled brat who thinks we're all going to worship him. Hey, I got an idea. Let's kill him. That'll put an end to that. All in favor say aye. Aye. Any opposed? The ayes have it. One of the brothers comes back a little later and says, well, we can't kill him. They put him in a pit. So why would we want to kill him? Look, there's some slave traders caravanning by. Let's sell him. Make some money off of him. So they do. Then they take his coat of many colors, and they dip it in the blood of a goat. And they take it to dad. Now dad's the one who deceived his father by wearing a goat skin, thinking it, making his father think he was his brother Esau. 
This is just all of that karma that's in there. What goes around comes around. And the dad sees the coat and says, that's Joseph's. Oh my goodness, it's got blood on it. And it was just lying around. He's dead. Joseph gets carted off and sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Things are going pretty good until Potiphar's wife puts the move on him. And he's smart enough and holy enough to say, no, I'm not doing that. So she's persistent. He continues to say no. So she grabs his cloak one time to pull him to her. And he takes off running. And she's got his cloak and says to her master or her husband, look, that Hebrew slave you bought, look what he did. And you've put him in power and authority and he tried to seduce me. Left his robe behind. So Joseph gets put in prison wrongfully. But in there, he manages ultimately to come out. God uses Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams to basically save not only the nation of Egypt, but the surrounding countries as well because God's bringing a famine. And Joseph is the one who has the wisdom from God to say, we're going to have seven good years before the famine comes. Let's store up our grain. By the way, they were not stored. The grain was not stored in the pyramids. Wipe that from your brain. Pyramids were an archaeological tourist site. When, Mo, when, when Joseph showed up, they'd already been there thousands years plus. So Joseph's there. He's, he's, he's in charge. His brothers ultimately, with the famine, have to go to Egypt to get grain. I'd say long story short, but it's too late for that. Uh, the... The, 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 the brothers and the father, they all move there ultimately. And because of the love of Joseph and the great care he took, they're great in the land until the new pharaohs come in. A new dynasty is taken over. And, and the Israelites become slaves. Their population becomes so big that the, the pharaoh says, we got to do something about this. This is getting kind of scary. So here's the new rule. Israelite baby's born. Girl, let her live. Boy, kill him. So this woman gives birth and it's a boy and he's a wonderful boy and she hides him for the first couple of months but she can't hide him anymore. So she takes him and she makes a, a, a basket. The Hebrew word is ark, like Noah's ark, out of uh, reeds and, and bitumen and pitch. And she puts the baby in it and puts it down in the bulrushes near the area where Pharaoh's daughter and the, 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 the upper echelons of, of Egypt, the women get to go down there and bathe. And then sets the older sister to spy. And so Pharaoh's daughter comes down. She hears the baby. She looks and what's that? It's a baby. Says, I'm claiming this one. It's mine. She calls him Moses. Now, Moses is actually a very common Egyptian name. It means boy child. And it would get added on to lots of other names. But it just happens to also be Hebrew for being drawn out. And it's great to read the books of Moses because Moses in his books says, I got that name because I was drawn out. It's my Hebrew lineage. It's not because of the Egyptian. She may have named me that thinking I was Egyptian boy child. But who was I really? Where did I get that name from? The salvation God brought to me. 
And Moses' nose is Hebrew hair. His mom gets to nurse him. He grows up and knows it. But there comes a time where he sees some Hebrews uh, 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 that, that, that uh, are, are getting set upon by the, the Egyptian overlord. And they're, they're getting whipped and beaten or one of them is. And, and Moses steps in, sees no one's around, and he kills the Egyptian. Next day, a couple of Hebrew people are still the only. This is so human. They rat him out. And now Pharaoh puts a death sentence on Moses. So Moses heads to the wilderness. And he finds a, 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 a shepherd who's got his Bedouin tribe, his daughters and others. And, and Moses, he hires Moses. And Moses marries one of the daughters. And they start having the children and a family. And Moses is out taking care of the flocks on the sides of slopes of Mount Sinai when Moses sees a burning bush that's not being consumed. And God calls out to Moses from the bush and says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And God says, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. And there's this encounter where God says, I want you to go save my people. And Moses says, I'm not qualified to do that. God says, no, actually, I'm going to do it. I just need you to be my vessel. Moses says, I'm not qualified to do that. And God says, yeah, I'm, I'm calling you. I'm qualified. I'm going to do it. So go and do what I tell you to do. Moses says, oh, can't you find someone else? I just don't have what it takes. And God says, what's that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a stick. God says, throw it on the ground. Moses throws his staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. God turns it into a snake. God says, pick it up. Moses picks it up and it's the staff again. God says, yeah, Moses, you may not have what it takes, but your stick does. So I'll just take your stick down to Egypt and lead the people out with your stick. Would you carry it for me? And yes, Moses puts the stick in the Nile and it turns red. He waves the stick across the land and the plagues come. God with a stick is all that was needed. Moses is simply carrying the stick. Nice little lesson for Moses. Now here's a question for you. Why a bush? Why does God appear in a burning bush? I don't have a great answer for you, but I will tell you that almost 10 years ago, about eight years ago, as a family, we were on the slopes of Mount Sinai, what we believe to be Mount Sinai today. And there's a monastery there, St. Catherine's Monastery. And it was built there because of a church that was built there, the chapel, the chapel of the burning bush that was built there by Helen, the mother of Constantine, or in her honor, by Constantine in the early 300s. And then in the 500s, the, the monastery got built around it. But in the process of being there, they've got supposedly the bush still there. And uh, uh, it's, it's real back behind a bunch of stuff. It's just kind of kind of like nobody pays attention to it. You just walk right by it. You think, well, that's kind of weird. And we were there, and, and Father Justin, the librarian, by the way, oldest continuous library in humanity is there at that monastery. Father Justin, I said to him, I said, so like, what's, what's with the weed? And he says, well, that's supposed to be the burning bush. Uh, at least that's what we've said since uh, Helen uh, built the chapel in the 300s. I said, really? 
He says, yeah. I said, well, why isn't it all like venerating? He said, that's the point. He said, why did God choose a bush? If he'd have chosen a majestic tree, the Israelites, bless their heart, would have worshipped majestic trees. If he'd chose a beautiful rose, they would have worshipped the rose. If he'd chosen a fruit tree, he'd have... So instead, it's a bramble bush. It's useful for nothing. But there was no risk that anybody would worship it. And he says the same thing is true for us. Our goal is not to worship an object. It's to worship the one that used the object. And we should be no different. So Moses, Moses... God says, I want you to go do it. So Moses goes down and he starts to liberate the people. But in the process of liberating the people, Pharaoh won't let him go. And finally comes the tenth and final plague, which is going to be the effectual plague that will cause the redemption of the people. Nothing works to redeem the people until this tenth and final plague. Plague number one didn't work. Plague number two didn't work. Plague number three didn't work. Plague number four and five. And oh, some of them seem to loosen up Pharaoh a little bit. But no, he hardens his heart. He won't let the people go. They are in slavery and in bondage. Listen to me. You can try to escape from the slavery of sin and the bondage of sin in every way humanly possible and you will not succeed. It is not humanly possible. And all of those plagues don't work until the tenth and final plague and it's the only one that will bring release from bondage to the Israelites. It is the one where God says you kill an unblemished lamb. And you take the blood of that lamb and you wipe it across the top of the door and the sides of the door. And when the angel of death comes to take the firstborn of everyone in the land, the angel of death will see that blood and pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt with my judgment, the angel of death. And Pesach, that Passover, is celebrated still today. Where God said, I'm going to redeem my people through the death of an unblemished lamb. You will be protected from death and delivered to the promised land. And the people, Pharaoh, go, get out. And God takes them out by day with a pillar of, of cloud to guide them and by night a pillar of fire. And it's a great little story too because they also took Joseph's bones with them. And that's inserted into the story. Just as it's inserted into the Genesis story when Moses says, look, I'm going to die here. But when God comes to take us back to the land that He promised our forefathers, He promised it to Abraham, He promised it to Isaac, He promised it to Jacob. And when God comes to redeem our people and take us back to the land He promised us, don't leave my bones behind because I'm part of the promised people. And the exodus finally happens, but they take Joseph's bones from 400 years earlier. Because Moses and the Israelites need to know that they're moving back to the land promised. It took 400 years, but God did not 
abdicate. He did not change his mind. He did not break his promise. Now, Pharaoh wakes up and thinks, what have I done? What have I done? And grabs his army and heads to go after the Israelites. The Israelites get hemmed in by the Red Sea. They're panicked. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites go through on dry ground. Pharaoh sends his army into the Red Sea and the Red Sea closes in, wipes them out. Doesn't wipe out Pharaoh. History shows us Ramesses II survived for a little bit longer. Text doesn't say it wipes him out. But the people are on their way. Now, if we just pause right here, just at this point, a prophet like Moses from your midst, the Lord will cause to arise before you, and to him you must listen. And no prophet like Moses, not any prophet like Moses, nobody who was a deliverer from the bondage of sin. No one like Moses who had a vision in Israel. It's got to be an Israelite. God's not sending the Messiah to the Dutch relatives, uh, the, the, the Saxons uh, up in an Anglo-Saxondry or whatever it would have been called. He's sending it to Israel. And Moses, who has seen God face to face? Jesus is God has seen God face to face in an intimacy that none of us can understand. Jesus, for God so loved the world that He gave, He sent His only Son, sent by God, doing signs and wonders. Not only is Jesus healing the sick, restoring the sight to the blind, the lame walk, the deaf hear. He brings Lazarus back from the dead. But the sign and wonder of his own death and resurrection. Awesome and great deeds before Israel that were done in God's mighty power. Jesus never said, I'm doing this, I'm a stud. He said, I'm only doing the works of my Father. Let all of the praise and glory go to God. So that's what we have. And if we had time, and we'll have to get to this later, but just just jump back to the Elmo with me for one quick moment. We can do this in a brief fashion pretty quick. I told you there are these five sections. Deuteronomy ends with, um, there will come one like Moses. Joshua starts and says, not yet. Malachi ends with, there will come one like Moses. The prophets end with that. It doesn't say it that way, but yes, it says it's a prophetic verse. It says the Messiah is going to come. He's still going to come. And then, this, the, so keep your eyes open. Keep listening. Keep reading your law because you're, he's going to be like Moses. And then you've got, the Psalms, he hadn't come yet by the time of that third group of Scripture. But the very first Psalm, the very first Psalm, Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
But his delight is on the law of the Lord, the books of Moses, and on them he meditates day and night. So he's saying, keep your eye on the ball because one will come like Moses. And Chronicles ends referencing the prophet Jeremiah who said God's going to send someone who, like Moses, is going to bring you the law, but it's, it's going to be a new covenant, a new law that's written on your heart. And will change who you are. So all of the Old Testament, can, all of the Tanakh, all of the Hebrew scriptures continue to point forward. You see it in Malachi 4, 4 through 6. You see it at the end of Chronicles where they quote Jeremiah. And you see it in Jeremiah. Now, why is all of this relevant? Look at Acts 3.22 for a moment. Acts 3.22 is Peter. And Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost. And he is talking to uh, uh, the people, actually, this is after Pentecost. He's just healed a lame man. And, and, and everybody wants to know how he did it. And, and the Hebrew scholars are asking him. And the Hebrew lawmakers are, are getting upset with him over it. And here's what he says. He says, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance when you killed Jesus. So did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer and thus fulfilled. Repent, turn back, that your sins will be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Yeshua, Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said... And he quotes the Deuteronomy 18 passage that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet will be destroyed. And then all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel, they've continued to say it. You're sons of those prophets. You're sons of the covenant God made when he said to Abraham, in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God raised up the servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's why God, that's who Jesus was. Jesus is the Messiah. He has been spoken about. And John, we'll see over and over, and I won't get to it today, but I promise you I'll try to bring these back. Moses brought the law. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Someone greater than Moses is here. Over and over and over in John, we read about Jesus as one who is beyond Moses. Jesus is the Passover lamb, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says it's in Jesus, the blood of the truly unblemished lamb, that God's able to pass over all of our sins and redeem us from the slavery of sin. All of that, and Jesus uses the Passover to say, this bread is my body broken for you. This, this wine is my blood poured out for you. All of that is all just the prophecy that unfolded with Moses in the Exodus explained. I've got to skip a couple of slides. And so oh, I, I don't have control from here. So I'm going to do it this way. Um, trust me, this stuff was really relevant. But I know that we're running late and you've got to get to lunch and I've got to get to Dallas. So here's what we're going to do. Here's the final uh, the message. So 
one like Moses, performing signs and wonders, a pure, unblemished Passover lamb who is killed to redeem God's people from slavery. It's pretty incredible. Points for home. Uh, This will get continued. Points for home. Ah, I messed up. The Lord struck down all of the firstborn of Egypt. Not those in Jesus. Not those under the blood of the Lamb. Death, where is your sting? If we die today, I feel bad for you guys left here. Because my toils and tribulations are over. The redemption from sin is done. And I am, I am home at last. When God sees the blood, the Lord will pass over. God's protection even in this world is real. He doesn't keep us from having difficulties but he protects us in those difficulties. And I I live by that. Finally, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote of me. Don't lose track of the miracle that's in Scripture in the sense that if, if I did not have a copy of the Old Testament written that was clearly done before the time of Jesus... I would have thought it was written afterwards. It's that clear. So maybe the answer for the skeptic is Jesus is made up. History just doesn't show that. You've got to really reach. Even the greatest atheists out there, Bart Ehrman says Jesus was real. So you say, well, maybe the church reinterpreted his life. Oh, come on. This is a bunch of fishermen. And this is done in the first 20 or 30 years after. I mean, by the time Paul's writing this stuff by 50 A.D., and he's not coming up with it. He's telling people what he's learned. He was a cynic. So he's within 20 years of the death of Jesus. This isn't an Internet rumor. They didn't have the Internet. Anyway. With that, I leave you till two or three weeks from now to to pick back up with this message, and we will continue at that point in time. Uh, Can I bless you before we go? Father, I thank you so much for letting us get a glimpse of history. It's really cool to live at this day where we can see and look back and see not only you making prophetic promises, but we can see them so clearly filled. It's really neat to be at that point in history. And heaven forbid, Father, that we not trust you with our lives when you've been so trustworthy through the millennia. So we give ourselves to you. We give ourselves to your Messiah, Jesus. We proclaim you Lord of our lives and we pray that we will live in that faith each day. Thank you, Father. Amen. 